Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I'd like to get through oil and gas pricing pretty quickly because it's some, something that's more interesting to me. Gas pricing is terrible. The stocks have begun to react. Dantero's down to 23 or 24. Gas pricing will get better. I mean, the answer for getting low prices to be higher prices is low prices. And rates will be dropped and the Hainesville are being dropped. I think from Marcella stays about flat rig-wise because their pipeline constricted and getting out of Marcellus. The I think the thing that's happened is that the associate gas from the Wolf Camp and the Permian, both the Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin, is more gas prone than we expected or the industry expected. And that's where the problem is. It's associated gas from the Permian. So but LNG, as LNG plants are completed, which will happen in 24, that should stop up the extra supply. That plus low gas prices and curtailed drilling in the Hainesville. As far as oil goes, a lot depends on how China comes back from lockdown and how oil demand overall behaves. The energy economists at OPEC and IEA and whatnot are predicting somewhere between a million and a half and two million barrels a day of additional demand in 23 versus 22. That's on top of a base of just around 100. So it's not clear where the extra supply is going to come from. So oil's behaving pretty well, I would say, but you know, a lot depends on China. And then there is some extra production capacity in Saudi Arabia and in Abu Dhabi as long as the Saudis and the Emirati sit on that production. And, of course, Russia has said that they're reducing their production in March by half a million barrels a day. But the energy minister quickly said that 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 wasn't a, they weren't necessarily going to continue that in April. So I think the supply side looks pretty good, pretty, pretty restrained, and the demand side if OPEC and the IEA, the IEA is kind of the, the, the group of consuming countries, and uh, they have pretty good economists, and then OPEC has pretty good economists. The IEA economists, from memory, I think sit in Paris, and the OPEC economists sit in Vienna, where OPEC's headquarters is. On macro issues, the interest rate to watch, I think, is not the Fed funds rate, which will probably go up a couple more times by 25 basis points and and will get in the 5% range. I think the interest rate to watch is the 10-year Treasury, and we still have QT going on, uh, reducing the balance sheet. Remember, the balance sheet for the Fed was about $2 trillion back before 08-09. Between 08 and 09, since the economy was coming back so slowly, 
they did QE and they added another two trillion, so that got them to four. And then COVID happened, and the U.S. federal expenditures were seven trillion dollars over two and a half years, more than receipts. And five trillion of that was in effect monetized by the Fed, taking the balance sheet up to nine. That's quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. Our QT started in March last year, and it's supposed, as of September, it's supposed to be going at the rate of 100 billion a month. What that means is that when the Treasury securities mature, and the interest coupons are not reinvested. So if you take that $9 trillion account and you don't reinvest the interest coupons or the maturities, the balance sheet comes down, and that's what they're committed to doing. So the combination of quantitative tightening uh, and the high Fed funds rate, so there's no carry. What carry means is if you're a hedge fund doing mostly fixed income, you can borrow like 10 times your capital or more paying a low interest rate and buying the 10-year bond or, or another maturity. But since the interest curve, if it were oil, I'd say it's backwardated, but it's inverse so that the short rates are higher than the 10-year rate. There's no carry trade. So think of it this way. If, if our government is going to run a trillion-dollar deficit, and I think for fiscal 23, which we're in, this is fiscal year for the government and September 30, you're more than a trillion dollars. So the way to think about it, I think, is, you know, interest rate is a price. The supply and demand of money is how much new money wants to buy Treasury securities as compared to what the Treasury has to raise. During COVID, the U.S. government way overspent receipts by $7 trillion, but since the Fed balance sheet was growing up by $5 trillion, only had to raise $2 trillion. So let's say a trillion dollars a year. Now, they're still running a deficit. They have to raise a trillion dollars, but they also have to make up for the fact that the balance sheet's coming down a trillion. So they have to raise $2 trillion. Now, with having to raise $2 trillion and, you know, how many people out there, you know, the sovereign governments and, and pension funds and whatnot, I think that that inverse relationship between the Fed funds rate and the 10-year Treasury is going to flatten out. And in fact, in the last week or two, it has. What's going on here is an expectation that the economy will stay fairly strong and the Fed funds rate will stay higher longer. And the tendency there will be less demand for the 10-year bond that people want to invest in it but you'll have the supply. Now, the Treasury will do short. In other words, they'll issue a lot of T-bills and whatnot. And in fact, there's $2 trillion as, as they, as they you know, bought all these securities. There's $2 trillion held by U.S. banks or regulated by the Federal Reserve at the Treasury where they get something like the Fed's funds rate in return for leaving that money on deposit. So, the first, you, you would think that the first $2 trillion of quantitative tightening wouldn't have that much of an impact. And in fact, they were doing at the rate of $30 billion a month from March to September. Now they're on a full $100 billion a month. So far, it hasn't seemed to have that much impact. 
but I think it's something to watch. I've gotten a bunch of statistics. I, I used to have a table of money in and money out of the federal government, and I, I, I have it through 2019. I'm hoping this weekend to have an Exhibit A to these 20 pages that, that would be a, 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 a new look at, at Fed funds, you know, the deficit and so forth, and, and maybe even be able to do a two- or three-year projection on that. But I, I hope I'm able to do that this weekend. But before I get into the thing I'm most interested in, and, and Mike and Jason are, are very well steeped in this, I just see if Mike or Jason have anything to add on interest rates or funds flows or whatnot before we go on to uh, my particular interest. So over to you, Mike and Jason, anything to add? No, I mean, we, we've had a view that the longer bonds need to have a higher yield for a while. So we're kind of seeing what's happened the last few weeks is normalizing what we expect. Jason? Yeah, sh- share that view. And just thinking about inflation as well as is, is we have a, an outlook on that, that it's going to be higher than the 2% goal for much further into the future than than most people are thinking. Yeah. With that, I'll try to talk through the numbers for the people who don't have the 20-page memo, but I'd like to quickly go to page three, the page that has NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Devices, and Intel. Mike and Jason are very familiar with Taiwan Semiconductor, and I'm just kind of learning it. And But I decided, from a strategic point of view, putting Taiwan Semiconductor in makes sense. Now, when I say strategic, and... Uh, I'm going to stand down pretty quickly and let Mike and Jason take over for the rest of the 30 minutes. But because the U.S. has sanctioned or cut off the ability or establish licenses or controls or whatnot on advanced chips and also chip making into China, it, it certainly isn't a positive for NVIDIA and AMD or Intel if Intel starts to come back. It's not a positive for LAM or ASML shipping equipment in there. But there is an interesting take on this. The Taiwan Semiconductor, which makes a very high portion of the advanced chips, and not only for NVIDIA and AMD, and they're also making chips for Intel, but they make chips for Apple and Google and Amazon. So they're in a very strong position. They also are building, trying to build the same kind of facilities they have in Taiwan in Arizona. The world of these high-performing chips just would be different if you didn't have Taiwan Semiconductor. I, I mean, you have Samsung up in Korea doing it, but apparently they're somewhat behind. The Chinese, of course, are trying. To, they hire a bunch of Taiwan Semiconductor people, and they're trying to do this with their own entity in China and you know, making progress, but not, not to the extent that TSMC is. Think about it, though. TSMC is not going to be subject to U.S. controls on what they can ship into China. So to the extent that a Chinese entity needs, you know, cutting-edge GPUs or whatnot, they just buy them from TSMC. So, you know, now I guess you could say, yeah, but suppose Taiwan to China becomes like Ukraine to Russia. The Chinese have been outspoken over the last week that people shouldn't say that. They say that's that's not... There, that's not what's going to happen. The Chinese foreign minister, which has a good command of English, is 
visiting Moscow this week and in his press conferences, the press comments, he keeps harping on that, that Taiwan is not going to be subject to the kind of thing that's happened to Ukraine. And in fact, China apparently has gone from possibly supplying aid to Russia to use in Ukraine to the, the prime minister, the president, the head of the Communist Party. She is, is now presenting himself and, and his foreign minister as people who are going to try to convene a multi-party Congress, you know, multi-country Congress to try to work out some kind of a arrangement between Ukraine and Russia. So not to say there isn't political risk. I mean, in, in evaluating TSMC as compared to, you know, someone, something that's based in this country, like a Google or a Microsoft or, you know, you, you, you have to recognize political risk. But I'm kind of thinking, at least at the moment, uh, subject to things going badly quickly, this looks pretty good. And so, you know, we have about 12 or 13 minutes left. What I'd like to do is, is draw Mike and Jason out on TSMC and what they think of this particular theory I've come up with. So, Jason, over to you first for how to, how to predict the next two or three years of activity and chips and whether you do better in TSMC than NVIDIA or AMD or ASML or LAM or what have you. How would you rank it? Yeah, and nothing's changed where TSMC is is clearly the monopoly on building advanced chips. Everyone goes to them for their their most advanced designs uh, to be manufactured. That that said, one of the points you made about if you're a Chinese company and you can just go to TSMC out of Taiwan and and buy the buy the chips that you'd like. The U.S. is is trying to prevent that. Um, so part of the sanctions are they state that if if you're manufacturing the chip with IP based from based out of the U.S., you can't make that sale to China. So one of the, you know, a lot of the the tools in the fab are are from U.S. companies. So one of the specifics examples of this is is Nvidia actually detuned, if you will, some of their most advanced AI chips um, to meet the regulations that allow them to be sold into China. So so they're kind of right at the the max capacity of, of power that you could sell an AI chip into China for. Like oh. anything. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's working to date. Yeah. Suppose, suppose I'm Tencent or Baidu or something, and I want to design a chip and, and have Taiwan semiconductor make it. I guess that would be free of U.S. sanctions. It's just, if the intellectual property comes from the video, or for that matter, from ASML, that that is what is can be held up. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's it's, and China's doing a good job of of trying to uh, recreate it on their own, and they've been able to to reverse engineer some things, but they're they're definitely in a hole where they they can't just purchase this technology anymore. Right, and there there are issues with trying to scale seven nanometer. Are just that they're it's not efficient, even though they were able to successfully do it with the older technology. It it's not effective at scale. You know, it's not just China that's not on the leading edge. It's all 
you know, one of these things Jason and I did a while back is kind of break down when everybody fell off of the leading edge. And Samsung, I guess, is the most recent, the last one to fall off. Yeah, um, or in the process of. Yeah, I mean, you could say they've been off for a little while now. So nobody's ever gotten back on the leading edge once they fell off in the history of semiconductors. So it brings us back to Intel, who this morning cut their dividend from $6 billion a year to two, and their efforts to try to catch back up. It's, it's a hard road. So that's where Taiwan Semiconductor, the, the longer they do this, the better they instill their process, the, the, the farther ahead they get. The business model is relatively simple. They set up these fabs, they run them. You know, the first few years, they don't make a ton of money on them but they get fully depreciated. And then once they're fully depreciated, they're just cash cows. Even if the cost per chip is really low, it's pure margin. So as opposed to Intel, who instead of keeping their old fabs alive, they actually rebuilt all of their existing fabs on the new process technology. They were never really able to take advantage of the trailing, the trailing edge technology. So now you have them trying to buy Tower Semi and, and trying to build a fab model and all of this stuff. So they're trying to reposition themselves in a good spot. But again, it points back to Taiwan's semiconductor kind of came up with the best model. And then what happened during COVID with all the, basically everybody's gone fabless, right? So NVIDIA, AMD, and now even Intel outsourcing their chip production to Taiwan Semiconductor. Taiwan Semiconductor was able to do something that, made the 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 fab business model far more attractive in that they were able to enforce purchase guarantees on their customers which shifted the risk of the capex that they have to take to the fabless companies which is kind of the the whole point of a fabless company is that you could start it and be able to run it without having heavy capex but in this case essentially they shifted that risk from taiwan semiconductor to the fabless companies which has worked out very well for taiwan semiconductor this quarter in particular or this this year in particular with some of those companies that had to pay those big upfront pre-purchase commitments just having to pay it out even though they're not taking the inventory so a lot of dynamics in the in the industry and and then you add the political layer on top of it it's very complicated. But I think your your conclusion, Hunt, is right that Taiwan is in a unique position in, in a way to be the arbiter between the East and the West. And I, I do think that in general, the Chinese seem to be very rational in their, and maybe that's too much of a stretch, but relatively rational in their decision-making when it comes to their strategic imperatives. So so I think that, I mean, it would just be foolish on the part of China to do something very dramatic in Taiwan that would risk destroying their, their prize asset, which is Taiwan Semiconductor and the semiconductor industry. Jason and Mike, how successful will Taiwan be in trying to replicate in Arizona what they have in Taiwan? How, I mean, is that a five-year project or... Or will they never get beyond seven nanometers? Or how would you predict the outcome there? Yeah, I, I think they'll they'll be able to manufacture the chips there, and they'll continue to to manufacture some of the more advanced chips. So by the time the fab opens, I think they're I believe they're planning to manufacture four and five nanometer chips there. 
the the leading edge will be on three nanometer by then. So it's it's always going to be a step behind, and they're never gonna they're never gonna have the same margins they do out of Taiwan. But it, it could be a good source of 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 revenue for them still. It, you know, if if defense companies in the U.S. have to purchase U.S. produced chips, you know, they can they can raise the prices to meet that. And and the management at TSMC has kind of already alluded to to that strategy. So I, I think it will be successful. I would just add to the to the last discussion. I think China's China has a good plan. It seems like to to take control of producing the trailing edge chips. So if you think back to you know twenty twenty one where we couldn't purchase a lot of the goods, the supply chain issues we kept hearing about, especially with cars, these weren't advanced chips that were causing this. This was this was all the little microcontrollers that you know power your seat heaters and stuff like that. So I think. I think China realized that, and, and they, they've been really scaling up their fabs to produce these kind of commodity chips. So if they can do that to CPUs, what they did to the flash memory business, basically put anyone else out of business that's manufacturing it outside of China, you know, they'll kind of control that market. And then, you know, that's, that's really got us in a bad spot. You know, it's, it's, it's like being in COVID. You know, they can, they can cause that kind of supply chain shortage at any time then you know, as retaliation, anything we do. The point, the point is really interesting because it may actually be more powerful than owning the leading edge. And if you think about our whole semiconductor policy is all about leading edge. But the point Jason just brought up is that nothing functions without the trailing edge. So we're just going to go to the situation of mutual dependency probably (laughs) at the end of the day. Um, none, None of this solves anything. Which is the Chinese company that looks most like a Taiwan Semiconductor? And how are they doing? I mean, do do they have public financials that we could look at? Or it'd be SMIC, SMIC. I don't know if they have published financials. I believe it's publicly traded. Yeah, it's O nine eight one in Hong Kong. If you are doing some AI application. Like, let's say you're Microsoft, if they're hosting uh, the chatbot, they need lots of GPUs. When you talk trailing edge versus bleeding edge, I mean, can you run that that type of activity with your seven nanometers and just not have it be as efficient as your three nanometers? Or what are you limited to doing if you're, you know, a, a generation behind in terms of the capability of the chips? Yeah, you're maybe the biggest limitation is time. Even training these algorithms on the most advanced chips takes weeks. And as the models get bigger and bigger, we, we talk about billions and trillions of data points going into these large language models that, that power these chatbots that we're using these days. It'll just take longer periods of time to train that. And, and they'll, you know, then, then you're falling behind on a software development side of things there. But I go back to my argument that given those constraints, they'll probably get better at writing efficient code. So, you know, these these sort of constraints sort of create opportunity as well. So, And one of the ways to write more efficient code is probably to use AI tools. True, yeah. <laughs> A little circular. And, and NVIDIA has gone from being a $100 stock to a $200 stock. And, you know, I think I, I 
I guess they're January fiscal year end, so we'll see their report in a while. But do you think a lot of that kind of doubling in value of NVIDIA comes from a recognition of what they're able to do with their their GPUs as compared to other other equipment that's available? Yeah, I think it's the flushing out of the crypto piece, right? So that, that kind of crypto hangover as people are using NVIDIA cards for, for mining cryptocurrencies. Obviously, that all stopped, especially once Ethereum switched over to 2.0, where it no longer could mine. Some friends of ours that, that did some of this refer to their NVIDIA GPUs as paperweights. So it's funny because like J- Jason and I never really thought of NVIDIA from GPU mining was sort of like a, uh, a nuisance because it, it really screwed up the gaming numbers because you look at it, most, most hobbyists that were using NVIDIA cards for mining were buying gaming cards and using them for mining. So it really made the, the numbers hard to interpret, so much so that even NVIDIA didn't know how much of their cards were going to mining use. So what's finally happened is we flushed through this crypto cycle and now you're seeing the, oh, wait, there is this other thing on the other side that NVIDIA has been talking about for a long time that is now becoming very tangible. Now, what's the growth curve of that going to be? I think it's going to be a gradual long-term trend, not, a, not, not like 2020 and 2021 when crypto mining became super profitable and you know, NVIDIA couldn't keep cards on the shelves and they were selling on eBay for twice the price and, and whatnot. So I don't think that is what we're returning to, but I think we're returning to a very stable long-term growth trend for the company. Good. Anything else, Jason or Mike? We're about through our 30 minutes. And anything else that's happened in the last seven days that is newsworthy on, on uh these things we've been covering this afternoon? Um, besides Intel finally cutting the dividend, I still wouldn't buy the stock. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you guys have been very clear and consistent on that. But the thing I'm going to take out of this conversation, walk around and think about is the statement that anyone who's fallen behind never has been able to catch up. Very interesting. You know, I sometimes think I've spent all this time in the energy business, and there must be some other easier businesses which, you know, don't have gas going from $6 to $2 and stuff like that happening. But I have to say that advanced chips and everything involved, uh, making the chips and <clears throat> designing the chips and whatnot, seems like a pretty, pretty tough, rigorous business that the expression I'd use is kind of a take no prisoners. You know, if you, if, if you don't, you don't get it done, there's not too much hope for you. The other, the other thing that we should mention that before we break up is there has to be a trend here that will impact the SMC positively, I think. And that is for these large tech companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon to design their own chips which is business for TSMC, but not necessarily positive for chip designers like NVIDIA. Maybe, maybe we'll hold that till next week, but it is certainly happening more now. 
Jason, just before, so we don't have people worrying over the coming week, I mean, there is a, a downside to that because those are pretty specialized chips. The chip designers may still have the upper hand. But with that, Jason, why don't we get your bike uh, final word on that so people don't worry over the next seven days? Absolutely. Uh, what what those big companies are doing is, like, if you think of Apple, they're, they might have a very specific chip designed in mind to process all of the voice coming in for Siri requests. So what they're doing is is super specialized, and it's not really going after NVIDIA's business or AMD's business there. And this this goes back, and this is a good example. This goes back to Intel's decision not to build the processor for the first Apple iPhone. Intel said, we'd rather build one chip and then let everybody else develop stuff on top of it. But the reality of a power-constrained environment, which is an iPhone or now a car or the data center, all of these things are power-constrained, and it provides a significant either marginal cost from an actual dollar sense or from a usability perspective for a phone. You need these specialized chips. And that's where the big tech companies had to get into designing their own chips, whether that's Amazon for their data centers or Apple for their iPhones, because Intel wasn't willing to do it. And back then, AMD wasn't good enough to actually build anything. So it was it was sort of they were they were pushed into that position. It wasn't probably something they wanted to do. All right. Well, that's a fitting end to this week. And in the meantime, everyone, be well, stay healthy, and talk next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 